God, I thank you for meeting us here in this place. We pray that as your word is opened and read and talked about, that you would speak to us, God, through these words. Uh, these words would find a place in our hearts, that they would help us to uh, learn what it means to be faithful to you with our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. When we picked that last hymn, it's a good one. I loved when, I, as soon as I heard the first, there's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. And so it caused me to start to think, and it's the way my mind works. I'm like, I wonder how wide the sea really is. <laughs> so, of course, put anything into Google. Um, in the Pacific Ocean, close to us here, the deepest, the largest ocean basin on the face of the earth. It covers 60 million square miles, with an average depth of 1,300 feet. So the answer is, it's really, really, really wide. Our job today is we're going to keep the wideness of the sea in mind as we take a look at Abraham's difficult family situation. They don't sound like they make any sense yet, but, but I, if they don't, it's my fault. Um, but I think they will. And so it caught me thinking about the family. Is there such a thing as the perfect family? Not mine. We're pretty good, but we're far from perfect, right? The family that's this perfect family, this idyllic family, the one that's always happy. They're always smiling, the one that gets along. They always stick together through tough times. This idyllic family whose parents never fight, whose babies sleep through the night, whose kids don't talk back, and of course get straight A's, and whose teenagers clean their rooms and take out the trash without their parents ever having to ask. The perfect family, right? <laughs> the truth is that we don't experience this. None of us do. The idyllic family doesn't exist. And so when you look at like TV shows, which would be kind of fun to do if we had more time, like Leave it to Beaver. Anybody remember that show? <laughs> the Beef? Um, they put forth this idealistic view of the family. But if you watch today's television shows, they paint a much more honest picture of the messiness of family life, right? We don't see many shows like Leave it to Beaver anymore. And so I always hear people say, as a pastor, people will say, like, well, if we could just go back to the 50s, then things were simpler, right? Or if we could just go back to New Testament times, things would be so much easier. And I'm like, really? Have you looked at Abraham's family? I don't think so, you know? And our text today is going to show us that, you know, Father Abraham had one challenging family situation 5,000 years before the beef made his entrance onto the television screen, right? And so God is desperately trying to school Abraham. He's trying to have him learn the importance of getting his family life in order so that God's ways could be passed down to the next generation. This is what we have this theme running through the story of the patriarchs, that, you know, it's like almost like God is worried that how is the next generation going to hear about God and God's ways? And God says, because parents are going to pass this down to their kids and their kids to their kids. And it's really important. And so this is going to be this really important and difficult task that we're going to see over and over again. But now let's listen to the complicated situation from Genesis 21. And we're going to keep in mind that as messy as things get in this family situation, that there's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. Here we go. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on that day, and Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom 
she had born to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman and her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy, because of your slave woman. Whatever she says to do, do as she tells you. For it's through Isaac that offspring shall be named after you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water, and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under a tree, under uh, one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Do not let me look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And an angel of God called out to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy. And he grew up, he lived in the wilderness, became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. The word of the Lord. And so we have to go backwards a little bit. God had made these promises to Abraham. Promises of a son and greatness, that he would be the father of many nations, that his descendants would be a blessing to all the people of the earth. All these were pipe dreams if Abraham remained childless. And so Abraham finally complains to God that he's going to die childless. And God gives him good news and bad news. He gives him the good news. He says the good news is, is you're going to have a son. The bad news is, is you'll be long gone before your family members take possession of the promised land. And so now Abraham then was forced to kind of contemplate his own mortality. He longed all the more for a son. His wife, too, is frustrated with her inability to have children, but she's not powerless, and she's smart, and she's capable, and she devises this plan to have an heir for Abraham by their Egyptian servant, Hagar. Abraham doesn't exactly kick her out of bed. She pushes Abraham into this weird relationship that's like somewhere between adultery and polygamy. And this may have been common practice in the Near East. But what we're supposed to remember is that God has a different idea in mind. He's trying to teach Abraham a new way of being a husband. And so Sarah's idea is problematic for all kinds of reasons. We all know when we read this story, for those of us that remember it, it's a terrible idea. And it's sure to backfire. And God is saying to Abraham that marriage is supposed to be sacred and holy. It's important for passing on the faith to our kids. But like anything else that's new... It's going to go through some rough patches. Some mistakes are going to be made. And so God doesn't approve of this weird plan, but he also doesn't interfere with Sarah's plan. Hagar gives birth to this son, this potential heir named Ishmael, which means God hears. This is really important to the story. 
And so Sarah hoped that now with Abraham having a son, that she too is going to be built up in power and esteem. But that's not what happened. They're playing this dangerous game and in a lack of trust in God's promises. They take it upon themselves to try to make God's promises a reality. They subscribe to this poor theology that all of us hear all the time from other places, that God helps those who help themselves. We've all heard that. People actually quote it as being from the Bible. Find it for me. Not there. God helps a lot of people who do not help themselves. It should read the other way around. And so we learned last week that God is always faithful to make good on his promises. And that God's ability to fulfill his promises, they don't have any bearing whatsoever on our decisions. That God is God, and nothing we learned last week is too wonderful or too impossible for God. And so Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah, despite the fact that we learned last week that both of them, when God told them they were going to have a kid, two separate accounts, Abraham falls on his face and he laughs at God when God tells him they're going to have a son. The next chapter, God says, Sarah's going to have a son, and Sarah overhears it, and what does she do? She laughs, too. They both laugh right at this promise. They place their faith in their own schemes to have a child, and not on God's ability to keep his word. But God keeps the promise anyway, and so now we've got this really messed up situation. It's going to be really difficult. We have two <laughs> sons from two different mothers, one father, and they're all living under the same tent. Anybody think that this is going to get complicated? <laughs> Very much so. And so the conflict is set up. It's set up between two sons. One who's the son of a promise, the other who's the son of a slave. And this is the conflict that's set up in the passage. And so Isaac is the son of the promise. The one that God had gifted them. The one, uh, when they were unable to have children, Isaac is the heir, the one that would inherit everything of the father. But Ishmael, being the oldest, also has some claims, and Abraham loves his son Ishmael. He loves both of his sons. Not only do Hagar and Abraham love Ishmael, but the best part of this story is the fact that God loves Ishmael too. And that's what we're going to look at a little bit more closely. God had already made promises concerning Ishmael. This is what he said. God had said that God would bless him, that he would make him fruitful and numerous. That God would make him the father of 12 princes and make him a great nation. It's not bad, right? I'm just the father of two knuckleheads, not 12 princes. <laughs> oh, I can't resist when you guys are here. Oh, sorry. I'll go to confession later. I'm just messing with you guys. Sarah's jealous of Hagar and Ishmael. And why wouldn't she? She's concerned that Ishmael is a teenager now is moving in on her son's inheritance. And so she catches a glimpse of him playing with Isaac, right? Which almost certainly means that he was mocking him, he was laughing at him, right? On this ceremonial day of celebration. And she decides to kind of rain down her hatred and jealousy on this boy and on her, his mother. And so she demands that Abraham send her and Ishmael away, essentially just condemning them to die in the barren desert of Beersheba, this place that gets almost no rainfall. And the only way to survive, there were, I think, if I remember this correctly, there were seven wells in this desert, right? And Abraham actually bought one of them. 
So Abraham owned one, which is the only way that he and his family could survive in this place. She's sent out to die. And God tells Abraham to do what Sarah said. Why would God do this? Why would God allow this to happen? Because God had already made the promise. This is what we have to remember all the way through Genesis, really running through the scripture. God had already made the promise concerning Ishmael. God loves Ishmael. He's got his back. He's watching over him. And so we have this with two sons. We've got one who's an insider. We've got one who's the outsider. One who's the son of the promise. One who's the son of a slave. The outsider is sent away to wander to his death in the desert heat. But the whole key to this story is that God actually loves the outside, Ishmael, right? Did I need to put this up, did I? There's a, little, there's a look at it today. How'd you like to be sent out into that with a little skin of water? Not me. Nick, you probably do well. <laughs> but I don't know. Most people wouldn't last very long out there, right? And so this is the key here, that God loves the outsider. And since Abraham can no longer provide for his son, God himself takes up the responsibility himself. He takes up the job of being Ishmael's protector. And so with three gallons of water, it doesn't last very long in the desert. Their water is gone. Hope is gone. Death is imminent. She can't bear. I mean, gosh, this just makes, when I read this, it's just like, it's heart-wrenching. It just, it kills you. She has to set her son under the shade of a tree. She can't even sit with him. She goes far enough away where she says she cannot hear the cries of her child dying of dehydration, right? The most, and this is just fascinating. She, won't, she can't hear the cries of her son, but God can. God hears the cries of her son. Remember his name, Ishmael, means God hears. Names always mean something in the Bible. And so this angel of the Lord told her that God had already heard the boy's cries, reiterated these promises that God had for Ishmael. This is really the third time, I think, in Scripture that those promises were given. And then her eyes are opened, and she sees that there's a well close by. They drink, fill their hydroflasks, and they're safe. And so Ishmael, it says at the end, he takes a wife, he becomes an expert hunter, he founds a great nation, the Ishmaelites, just like God had promised. So I admit, when I read this again, I was struggling to find the good news in this story. Like, all I could think about is this newspaper headline that would read something like, Mother and Son Sent into the Wilderness to Die, you know? It's like, not exactly a feel-good story. And then it has a really good ending. And so there's a few things I think we can think about. Um, Abraham is given one test after another. And next week, we get to the, the biggest one of them all, the most, I think, the most difficult passage in all of Scripture to talk about. But up to here, he passes every one of them so far. Um, and so Abraham is learning slowly what it means to be faithful. He has to learn this. It's taking some time, but he's, along the way, he's ultimately learning this process of what, it, what does it mean to live your life in obedience and faithfulness to God? His family is far from perfect, like all of our but he's learning what it looks like to be faithful. And so God wants him to be different from the men in the surrounding cultures. God wants him to have one wife, not two. He wants him to be committed to each other. He wants him to commit to God and to commit to passing on the faith to, to his kids. And so the ordering of his family comes at this pretty heavy price. Ishmael, his other son, is sent away. 
And you know, just, this is a heartbreaking thing. But in this unusual story, we learn this, that the wideness of God's mercy goes beyond the covenant people of Israel. This is really important. And this is where I was pleasantly surprised by the story. We all feel for Hagar, for Ishmael. They weren't the story. They weren't the future. But they're real, breathing, feeling human beings. And these people matter. They're important. And we learn from the story that God loves them too. That God provides for their needs, blesses them with good things. And so in the covenant, God chose Abraham. And it says that he chose Abraham of all the peoples on the face of the earth to form this unbreakable bond. And then God chooses to continue it, to transmit it from Abraham to his son Isaac, this new way from one generation to the next. And so Isaac is now in line as the next patriarch in the line of Abraham's family tree. And so if we look at this only through this one lens of, say, something like fairness, right? then this election of a particular people, Abraham's family, and the people of Israel, it seems almost scandalous if we don't keep in mind the most important thing, that the goal of this election, this choosing of this people, was so that uh, they would become a light to the world, right? That their job was to show the world who God is, what God was like. And God's plan started with this one guy, Abraham, and it grew there to encompass the goal of every single human being on the planet as the Israelites were blessed in order to become a blessing to the world. In other words, the whole world was to be blessed by God through this chosen people, through Abraham and his family tree. The whole world was to know of God's salvation and come under God's loving rule. So being chosen here isn't, it's a great privilege, but it comes with an enormous responsibility. And here's, I think, a mistake that we could make. We can pat ourselves on the back. We're, we're in the club, right? But it's not this entitlement or exclusionary thing. We don't pat ourselves on the back because we're in and others were out. Isaac was in and Ishmael was out. Our story said, these are the key words in my mind, it says that God was with the boy. God was with the outsider, the stranger, the one who wasn't going to inherit the promise. And so God was with Ishmael, the son of an Egyptian slave. God provided for his needs too. And so God's grace goes so far beyond what we expect. It goes beyond what we could ever comprehend, whatever we could possibly imagine. It's extended to all people, no exceptions. Even Jesus taught us this. Even our enemies receive God's mercy. And it would be so easy to overlook Ishmael and just move past his story. But as the hymn we sang, it says there's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. The hymn was written to celebrate God's welcome of sinners and saints alike. And it reminds us that God's love and mercy stretch far beyond our capacity, our tiny little brains. No offense myself. We can't put a limit on God's mercy. That God hears the cries of the abandoned. God hears the cries of the outsider and the insider alike. And so maybe the question for us might be, do we hear 
the cries of these people? Do we hear their cries? We know that God hears them, but do we? And we remember that through Abraham, all the families of the earth were to be blessed. And so this is where we get to play a part in God's story. Who should Lightshine Church bless? Do we get to pick and choose who we bless? Do we only get to bless people that are like us? People that look like us or think like us? People that behave like us? Do we only get to bless people that vote like us or hold the same theology as us? Who might be, who might God be challenging us to extend mercy to? because of the truth and the reality that we see in this story. Maybe, maybe, we need to stretch our idea of mercy to be more like God's, to be more inclusive, to be wider, to encompass more people. Here's where I learned something. There are 187 quintillion gallons of water in the Pacific Ocean. Does anybody know what a quintillion is? I don't know. How many zeros are on it? Does Jefferson, you're a college graduate. <laughs> what the hell is a quintillion? I can't get my mind around this. I don't know what it means, but again, I know that I know the point. It means that it's really, 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 really wide. Maybe incomprehensibly wide. Wider than my mind can wrap itself around. And so maybe we should do our best to make the wideness of our mercy like the wideness of the sea. That's how wide God's mercy is. And so I wonder, can we think, could we think of one person that needs God's mercy to be extended to them? One person. Someone hurting can hear their cries for mercy and for help. We pray with God, your grace is absolutely remarkable. And so we praise you for your incredible mercy shown to us and shown to all. God, we thank you that your mercy doesn't run out, that it extends to both insiders and outsiders alike. That you cause the sun to shine and the rain to fall on all. God, help us to extend your mercy even to those that we struggle with. Amen.